So we continue our series on the Apostles' Creed uh, uh, called What We Believe. Remember, we're going through this series as a, a way of navigating through, hovering over, digging into what the content is and, and what it means to be a follower of Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? This is Christianity's oldest creed, one shared for millennia, agreed upon by Christians across denominations and churches, regardless of beliefs about end times, origins of creation, or church authority structures. You could be Roman Catholic, African Anglican, American Protestant, social reformed, pres, like we are, or any expression of those denominations, and still, the Apostles' Creed be, would be a place where we could all agree. As I said to the elders last week and after, our, and after church in our meeting, this is our die-for zone. This is the content that if I was asked to deny it, I would have a very hard time doing so. Also recall that this, uh, from when my, the first sermon I did of the series here weeks ago, that this is a list of dots that form the structure of how we perceive and engage the world. Last time I mentioned an interview Tim Keller did with Carrie Newhoff and how Keller said that in our current culture, uh, the people in the general culture have no more dots that they share, or very few, if any, with people in the church, with Christianity. The general culture no longer sees many of the listed values of Christianity as worth much. So we're going through the Apostles' Creed to see what we what our dots are we do this so that we can be better equipped to talk to our friends and neighbors about what we believe and why people say all the time that they're afraid to talk to people about the gospel or gospel related topics because they don't know they they're afraid they won't know what to say and i understand that fear and i've shared that fear uh, many a time my suggestion, and I think the leadership's suggestion, and it's a great suggestion for any believer, would be that if you don't know what to say in a moment when a question is asked of you about Christianity, perhaps start here at the Apostles' Creed. We're going through it in 20 weeks, but the Creed is only, about a, uh, is a, is only a dozen statements of belief. If someone asks you, perhaps instead of going right to the answer of their question, you can think through which part of the Apostles' Creed might engage their question. For example, if someone has a question about the possibility of miracles, there are several lines in the creed that state something miraculous happened. And you could ask, how do you explain these statements? Or go from there, and go from there exploring with your friend the breadth and depth of the possibility of what miracles could be. Perhaps if someone has questions about what justice is, which is very popular these days, Maybe the part where it says Jesus will come to judge the living or the quick and the dead, or where it says we believe in the forgiveness of sins, would be appropriate places to engage with people. The Apostles' Creed is a great place to start when dialoguing with others who may have doubts and questions. Now, when I last preached, I said I would share each time I do a little history about the Apostles' Creed. I mentioned at the time that the Creed 
that we have was pretty much settled in its verbiage by about the 5th century, maybe as far as the 7th, but that many of the lines in the creed had been around since the 2nd century. And during that time between the 2nd and 5th, the creed, or parts of it, were sometimes known as the rule of faith or baptismal creed. They were sometimes recited at a baptism. The ideas were similar as we have today, though the wording may have differed. Arrhenius, uh, a bishop in the south of France in the late 2nd and early 3rd uh, centuries, wrote in one of his treatises titled, titled Against Heresies, he wrote these phrases at the time for what the church believed. Maybe you'll recognize some of it. He said, She believes, she the church, in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord. That was Arrhenius from the 2nd and early 3rd century. You can see from his what he wrote 2,000 years ago, very similar phrasing that we have today, which is kind of cool, kind of a cool and encouraging bit of history. But this morning, we're looking at the statement, suffered under Pontius Pilate. What I want to do is look at the three parts of this one short phrase. I want to do it in reverse order. I want to look at Pontius Pilate, the word under, and the word suffered. I want to look at all three. With Pontius Pilate, we have a specific history uh, uttered. With the word under, we have a submission to save. And with the word suffered, we see the severity of sin. So a specific history, a submission to save, and the severity of sin. With Pontius Pilate, a specific history. So with this name, we are pointing, uh, pointing to a specific place a particular time when we invoke that name of Pontius Pilate. Let me say before I go further that with this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and the next one that Fred will be addressing next week, crucified, dead, and buried, the creed is shifting slightly. Let me explain. In the first six sermons about the phrases in the Apostles' Creed, all the ideas and concepts expressed have some aspect related to the unseen world. The world that is outside the box. Remember, in my first sermon, I talked about how the very first phrase clearly states that we believe there is a reality beyond that which we see and experience with our senses. Inside the box is a purely material world that is only knowable by our eyes, ears, nose, mouth, skin, and that we use our minds here inside this box to work out the details. Outside the box says there is a greater reality than any of our senses can grasp and our minds comprehend. The first phrases of the Apostles' Creed up until this point all have that characteristic. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Those all have that outside the box aspect to them. They also carry with them, as a result, an aspect of the miraculous in some ways, some the, the awesome, 
the transcendent. God the Father creating, Jesus being Christ's being the Christ and, and the Father's Son, the conception of Jesus, conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, <coughs> and being impossibly born to a virgin woman. All of these have miraculous characteristics to them. But with the phrase suffered under Pontius Pilate, and the next one Fred will tackle next Sunday, we do not have that aspect. This phrase is entirely in the box, and it is meant to be exactly that. And not only is this phrase non-miraculous, even non-spiritual, but it is purely physical. It is the name Pontius Pilate that grounds these next two phrases in the creed to this world. It echoes of that verse John wrote in that first chapter of his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. These phrases are heavily incarnational in idea. This is flesh and blood being talked about here. This is gut and grind, not angelic intervention, not Red Sea parting in tone. When we state these phrases, we are to taste the blood in our mouths, feel the sweat on our skin, and the ache in our muscles. And this is entirely biblical. This is entirely human. And it is a part of the transcendent salvation of this world. I mean, look at the world words used in Isaiah 53, particularly verses uh, 4 and 5. Smitten. That's not the love smitten, people. That's like being struck in the face. Afflicted. Pierced. Chastised. Wounded. These are not words used to describe God on His throne when the prophets saw visions of Him and described His legs as burnished bronze. This is blood, sweat, and tears. It reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews wrote about Jesus in chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. In verse 14, he said, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And in verse 17, it says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Naming Pontius Pilate in the creed, in our creed, grounds us in actual history. So briefly, who was Pontius Pilate? From the accounts in the Bible we have, he was the Roman governor of Judea appointed by Emperor Tiberius at the time of Jesus of Nazareth. It is under his rule that the events of the Passion of the Christ transpired. It is under his authority that Jesus was handed by the Jews over to be crucified by the Romans. You, of course, can read all that in the accounts of the Gospels. From other info we have about Pontius Pilate, we know his rule was from about 26 to 36 AD, that the incident with Jesus probably happened around his seventh year of governor, as governor. We have archaeological evidence of his rule in printed coins and something that was found in 1961 in a coastal city in Israel that bears his name and title. We also have written accounts by the Roman historian Tacitus, who wrote that Pontius Pilate was under whom, quote, Christus suffered the ultimate penalty. Even the early first century writers Philo and Josephus mentioned Pilate. So there is historical evidence of an actual Pontius Pilate. Tradition states that a few years after the encounter with Jesus, Pilate was recalled or may have retired back to Rome, possibly due to a particularly cruel battle and victory over Samaritan rebels. 
who I think happened to be following another Messiah at the time. There is little information as to what happened to Pilate after his return to Rome. Incidentally, some Eastern Orthodox traditions state that he and even his wife may have become Christians and perhaps were martyred. Now, this is tradition. In the Orthodox Church, Pilate's wife, who might have been named Procula, was sainted. There is a Saint Procula, Pilate's wife. There is an account in the Gospels, uh, I think it's Matthew, where Pilate's wife sends a message to Pilate while Jesus is on trial and says essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, I can't sleep because I'm having dreams about this Jesus. Don't execute this righteous man. And even in this verse in John that uh, was read, you see the account of Pilate being conflicted about the accusations against Jesus, seeing no wrong in him. And yet, even though not completely portrayed as the devil, he does a devilish thing, really a political thing, and concedes to the mob and hands Jesus over for crucifixion. But before that, he symbolically washes his hands of a consummate politician. How would the significance of this point apply to us today? Well, first, we can engage the sometimes touted idea that religions in general, and Christianity in particular, is a load of, uh, of made-up hogwash with little evidence of a real Jesus who lived. Well, I would say if the biblical accounts mention prominently a Roman governor, and in our centuries of digging in the dirt in the Middle East and, and longer and later we find evidence of that Roman governor's existence, and then there are writings at the time that connect that governor to Jesus, or Christus, wouldn't that lend credibility to the biblical accounts? It should certainly make you go, hmm. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. There is reasonableness to our faith. It doesn't lock our faith into 100% certainty but it certainly places it in the credible column. Another point of application. Our faith, our beliefs, have two feet firmly planted in the actual physical world. Therefore, our acts of faith, our way of doing community, our expressions of what we think is true ought to reflect this. Jesus was incarnate. He is still incarnate to this day, if Scripture is accurate. We need to be incarnate with our faith. How are we doing with this? Are we doing enough? Those would be questions to ask for this point. I'm not saying we run into the, uh, rush into the next cultural thing without biblical wisdom of thought. I wonder about that a lot these days, but I am saying that we carry that same spirit of the incarnate Jesus in his day that was passed to his followers and on down through the centuries to us here in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Jesus' followers have been incarnating his life and community for two millennia. Let's tap into that spirit. How do we do, as Galatians 5.25 says, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. The submission to save, this word under. 
In our creed in this part, we say Jesus went under Pontius Pilate. And this he did willingly. Now think with me for a moment about this idea. The great God of the universe, the one who spoke and flung everything into existence, and the only begotten Son, our Lord, submitted himself to the earthly authority of a human. He submitted himself to his creation. Here's the biblical evidence. Matthew 27, 2 says, and they bound him, Jesus, and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Matthew 26, 52 through 54 says, and this is after Peter pulls his sword and cuts off an ear at one of the people that are coming to arrest Jesus. It says this, Then Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he'll at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? John 19.10 says, So Pilate said to Jesus, you will, not, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it were given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It is evident from these places in the New Testament that Jesus is exercising submission to a lesser authority. He is placing himself under someone whom he shouldn't be under, and yet he, he is doing that. Jesus, Jesus willingly went under another authority. Philippians 2, 5-8, through 8, very familiar. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what did Jesus humble himself under? He submitted to the justice of lies, the consequences of false accusations, and the big E and little e enemy severe acts of ultimately murder. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What does this say to us here right now? Would we be willing to submit ourselves to an unrighteous authority? Now, I'm not talking about unfair taxes and twisted content in public schools. I'm talking about this level here recounted in the Gospels about Jesus. That level of submission to an unrighteous authority. Would you be willing to accept accept the successful accusations of liars and schemers. Jesus did. This is hard for me to think about, especially as an American. Our inclination is to fight. Where's my rights? And I'm not saying that this isn't a proper... This is, I'm not saying that that's an improper response, but there is a time for everything, as Ecclesiastes says. 
In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo carries the sword Sting for much of the story of the quest, using it as needed. But towards the end, he relinquishes it. He gives it up to Sam, and he says, I'm going to carry a sword no more. Would you be willing to give up the sword? Even if you knew there are liars and schemers on the other side asking you to give it up. I submit several pieces of biblical evidence for submitting to others and unrighteous authority. Of course, we have Job, who came under the unrighteous power of the enemy. We have Joseph, who was beaten and sold into slavery. We have David, who was unjustly pursued by King Saul for years had ample opportunity to strike Saul down, but did not. We have examples in modern day. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He actually fled, but then returned to Germany and submitted himself under that National Socialist regime. So, we have a particular history in Pontius Pilate. We have the under, the word under, where we submission to save, and then suffered, we have the severity of sin. This is a difficult concept for us Westerners, us moderns. Pain management is a major thing addressed by hospitals and doctors. And that's because it's a major motivation for us, the citizenry, not to experience pain. And I hate pain. I understand that. We have closets and cabinets full of bottles of various things to address even the least of discomforts. Suffering is a four-letter word for everyone on the planet, actually. Some live in it and are righteous. The wicked twist it and take advantage of it. Either way, it's present always. It is present because suffering and pain were the fruit of the picking of the forbidden fruit. The curses carried pain and suffering in their wake. To the woman Eve, God said in Genesis 3, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. To the man Adam, God said in Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Suffering is a consequence of the fall. We suffer when we do evil. But suffering happens even when we do good as well. I know. Sorry to bring bad news, but we do. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Luke 21.12 says, But before all this... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. John 15:20 says this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking a similar thing, is like, great, wonderful. Suffering, though occurring, whether in and evil or good has a purpose and an end. 
suffering, though occurring, whether we're doing good or whether we're in good or evil, has a purpose and an end. Let me share a couple of quotes from C.S. Lewis's book, Problem of Pain. He wrote this. We are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. The first answer, then, to the question why our cure should be painful is that to render back the will which we have so long claimed as our own is in itself, wherever and whenever it's done, a grievous pain. Hence the necessity to die daily. However often we think we have broken the rebellious self, we shall still find it alive. Lewis is saying it's painful to give up our wills to God. That's why Paul said you've got to die daily. How about this? Lewis wrote, Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But from the scriptures, we see that the real meaning of the phrase he suffered under Pontius Pilate is this. Go back to Isaiah 53, 4-6. Here's the real meaning of suffered under Pontius Pilate. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I read earlier two verses in, from Hebrews chapter 2, but I did not read all the verses. Let me correct that now. Hebrews 2.14, I read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I did not read, That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2, verse 17, I read, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. I did not read, So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He, Jesus, who need not experience any adversity or suffering, willingly submitted himself to that suffering in order to inaugurate God's kingdom where suffering will someday be destroyed forever. Let me read that again. He who need not experience any adversity or suffering willingly submitted himself to that suffering in order to inaugurate God's kingdom where suffering will someday be destroyed forever. By his wounds we are healed. How do we apply this? Well, first, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are knowingly actively participating in some form of action that is contrary to God's law, that is, sin, then, then repent. Stop and turn around. But realize the gospel, the story of Jesus, his suffering under Pontius Pilate, is right there to meet you. It is not departed from you. 
It is there as the father waited for the younger son to return to his home in the parable. This after the son realized from the pigsty that there is so much more waiting for him at home. Open your eyes, repent, and find accountability. Develop friendships with the rest of us same-styled broken pilgrims on this path. We're all in this path. If you're not a follower of Christ, then do you not realize that the whole point of Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate was to give you release from the burden you cannot carry in order for you to enter into the relationship you were designed for? This phrase from the creed isn't the only inviting, uh, isn't, uh, isn't only inviting you to this relationship, it is also challenging you. This was a man, the God-man, who lived a flesh and blood life in time and space. His muscles ached, his brow sweat even unto blood for you. Do you not see that? And how will you respond? Today you can start that journey toward the kingdom where suffering won't even be a memory because that is what we were made for. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, I can't conceive of you doing this. What are we? What is man? What is woman? Who are we that you would be mindful of us in this way? That you would lower yourself, carry that burden, and then offer that price to us for free. But it wasn't free to you. Help us to ground ourselves in that. Help us to continually be in awe. Help us not to lose the, the sense of we just, I don't get it sometimes. And that's exactly the point. It is so wonderful. It makes my jaw drop that you would do this for me and for us. And Lord, help us to tell that to others help them to see the awe of you suffering under Pontius Pilate pray this in Jesus name Amen